This podcast is brought to you in part by Bangor Savings Bank. Bangor Savings Bank celebrates local every day. It's where we live, work, and play. Bangor Savings knows local is a little bit different for everyone. It's the region, the people, the businesses, and the sense of community that makes your local so unique. And Bangor Savings Bank supports your local by partnering with people and communities in support of that wonderfully local way of life. It's what Bangor Savings Bank has been doing since 1852, investing in you, your business, and your community to help New England thrive. Bangor Savings Bank, where you and your local matter more. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. Is it because of all the rain we got? Maybe. It's uh, down a The river's bit. higher. Aguanu Banawabskewiduk. Welcome to the Penobscot River. This is Dawn Neptune Adams. She's a Penobscot activist who lives near Indian Island, just outside of Bangor, Maine. And she's taking me to the Penobscot Riverbank at dusk. It was majestic. You could see the fireflies and the pine trees reflected in the water. And the river was much wider than I expected. And mosquitoes were everywhere. There we go. Yeah. Bug spray seems to be a staple around here. Um, it's my summertime cologne. It's called Deep Woods Off. <laughs> She's brought along her friend, Cynthia Taylor, Cynthia is known as a Penobscot auntie since she's not yet a grandmother. I ask her how conditions are today for the Penobscot who live here on the reservation. Um, in some ways they've improved as far as uh, housing goals and things like that. After the tribes of Maine signed the Settlement Act in 1980, things kind of got better for the Penobscot and the Passamaquoddy. The deal signed away some of the tribe's sovereign power, but it did bring money, a lot of it. The tribes each got over $40 million, which included money to invest in jobs and funds to buy land, vast forests and other land that many tribal members believe was stolen from them. The tribes in the state might have stayed happy with the Settlement Act, a trade of money for power. But then, the state of Maine came after the thing that meant the most to the Penobscots, the state came for the river that shares their name, the Penobscot River, 60 miles of it. The river is definitely part of who we are, and they can't take that away from us. No matter what law, whatever they try to say, they'll never, ever take away that ownership from us. From the Salt Institute for Documentary Studies, this is Sovereign a podcast about the fight for tribal autonomy in Maine. I'm Serena Snyder. For more than 150 years, Native tribes have been considered nations within a nation. But in Maine, the situation is far more complicated. Maine has restricted the rights of the tribes within its borders more than any other state. And the hardest thing is, the tribes in Maine agreed to this 40 years ago, when they signed a deal to give away some of their rights for money. 
On today's episode, our final chapter, the tribes try to understand what that deal really meant, and they start to fight back. Now a message from our sponsor, Bangor Savings Bank. Bangor Savings Bank celebrates New England's local way of life every day. It's where we live, work, and play. With the personal service and heart of a local bank and the resources and technology of a much larger bank, Bangor Savings Bank works hard to fill the needs of your local community. Bangor Savings Bank, where you and your local matter more. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. Now back to the show. You can imagine the initial excitement when Maine's small Indian nations, who had suffered centuries of poverty, got millions of dollars. This was it, the payback for every bad deal they had signed, for all that had been stolen from them. And the tribes spent the money in pretty savvy ways. The Passamaquoddy tribe increased their land to more than 100,000 acres. They became one of the biggest landholders in Maine. And logging revenue from that land still helped support the tribe. They bought two radio stations in Rockland and a giant 2,000-acre blueberry farm in Columbia Falls, Maine, one of the largest in the world. The blueberry operation was once estimated to bring in $2 million a year for the tribe. But other businesses went bust or got sold after a few years. The Penobscot tribe lost a million dollars on a mobile home manufacturing business. The upshot was that poverty remained high on the reservations, and jobs were scarce. It was hard. But they had managed to keep a lot of their traditional ways of life, hunting and fishing along the river, for example, and the state didn't seem to have a problem with that. Then, all of a sudden, in 2012, that changed. Maine's Attorney General William Schneider sent a letter to Maine's Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife. It said that the Penobscot tribe no longer had rights to sustenance fishing in the main stem of the Penobscot River. Sustenance fishing is the tribe's traditional practice of catching and consuming fish. It just shocked me. It was shocking. How can that possibly be? That's John Banks, director of the Penobscot Tribe's Department of Natural Resources, from a PBS documentary at the time. The 1980 Settlement Act had given the Penobscot Tribe rights over one large section of the river. But now the state was basically saying that the tribe didn't control the water in between the islands, only the islands themselves. Kirk Francis was the chief of the Penobscot Tribe at the time, and he still is. So in uh, 2012, we really felt like that was a serious attack on the tribe in multiple ways. It was, um, it really, what it said was, your 70 miles or so of ancestral territory is no longer yours. So there was a territorial removal um, threat, and there was also a cultural identity threat there. So what they were basically saying is your subsistence lifestyle in the river and your sustenance-based fishing rights um, do not exist. But the state of Maine said, you know, we did all agree to this in writing back in 1980. One of our producers, Sanam Skelly, talked with the man who was the deputy attorney general for Maine at the time, John Patterson. The original deal was that the water was not a part of the reservation, period. 
Was that your understanding at yes, the time? it was absolutely my understanding at the time. Not and that if they want to claim now that that was their understanding, um, they can claim what they want to claim. But that's not, that was not part of the deal. They shouldn't have assumed the water was a part of the deal. You have to read the words of the agreement, and it was never part of the deal. The Penobscots were floored. The river had been a part of their heritage, and it was how they got food. And more than that, the tribe had been working to clean up the river, a river that was seeing more and more pollution from industry, mostly paper mills. The tribe felt they had no alternative. They sued the state in federal court. Chief Kirk Francis described how strange it all was. What they were arguing was that the tribe can fish all it wants if it stands on the islands, if we stand on the islands. They even made ridiculous arguments that the tribe never really fished in the river, like we, we would just stand on the shore and, and those things. Matter of fact, the judge laughed when that argument came up. They just kept going back to the plain language in the Settlement Act, which really incorporated treaty language. While the case was moving through the legal system, the relationship between the state of Maine and the tribes got even worse. The tribes had always sent a few non-voting representatives to the state legislature. In 2015, those representatives walked out of Maine's Capitol building in Augusta in protest. But legally, the tribes had trouble making their case. A federal appeals court ruled for the state of Maine and recently just reaffirmed that ruling. The 1980 Settlement Act was strict and binding. There was now only one option for the Penobscot and the Passamaquoddy. They needed supporters inside the Maine state government to finally help renegotiate that deal they signed 40 years ago. I'm Jeffrey Evangelos. I'm a state representative. I serve in the Maine House of Representatives on the Judiciary Committee, which is the committee that hears laws in reference to Native American sovereignty. Evangelos comes from a Republican town in Maine, calls himself an independent. He kept talking about how his inspirations were John F. Kennedy and Frederick Douglass. Evangelos says this whole standoff between the tribes and the state has become shameful. I don't know what Maine is so afraid of, uh, but we have to talk about one word that nobody wants to talk about, and that's race. They've been on the receiving end of discrimination, and Maine needs to wake up to it. Was there a moment when you said, we have to fight back, we have to do something about this in a concrete, tangible, legislative way? Well, I've been saying it all my life. I've been like this ever since I was a kid. Um, so, no, there wasn't a moment. So Representative Evangelos took a stand. He drafted a bill that would make a bunch of changes to the relationship between Maine and the tribes. For one, the tribes would get more authority over taxes, hunting, and fishing. They'd be able to have more control over what they do with the land they own, like opening a casino. Tribal courts would get more power. But then the bill died without a full vote in 2020. This year, a similar bill was introduced. It made some progress. Evangelos says they'll try to pass it next year, in 2022. The slow progress seems to be because Maine, right now, has all the cards. It already has significant power from the 1980 Settlement Act. And any changes make some Mainers worry about what might happen. For instance, up north in Maine is a town called Carabasset Valley, most famous for its ski resort, 
Sugarloaf Mountain. The Penobscot tribe owns 24,000 acres near the resort. And right now, if they want to do something significant to that land, they need the town's permission. That's part of the 1980 Settlement Act. But if the new legislation passes, the town is worried that the tribe will be able to do whatever they want. Dave Coda is the town manager. It's easy to jump on a bandwagon without actually reading the legislation and understanding it. We do understand the plight of, of the Indian tribes in Maine. I, but, they, you know, they settled this in 1980 after years and years of negotiation. He worries that if the tribes fully control the land, they will be able to permanently block ATVs or snowmobiles. But more than that, to Dave Coda, it just feels wrong. I mean, this land has been, you know, it's been part of the, the town of Carabasset Valley ever since the incorporation of the town. Again, what we're creating here, the potential to create here, uh, is a nation within a town. It's very unique to the whole state of Maine. Uh, So we have some real concerns with this. If the state wishes to allow this, I mean, it's it's just very unfair to us here at Carabasset Valley for us to be taking on the biggest part of the burden for for this legislation. In some ways, the debate is starting to sound like 1980 all over again, with Mainers getting scared about what might happen if the tribes have more power. So far, Maine's governor, Janet Mills, hasn't come out against the tribal bills, but she seems to be stalling. She didn't call a special session to consider the 2020 bill, and she also just vetoed a separate bill that would have allowed tribal gaming. We reached out several times to Governor Mills, but she didn't respond. The most extensive comments we found from the governor were on a main public radio show, Maine Calling. It's not a simple thing to say, the tribes in Maine shall have the same status as um, tribes out west. Um, it's 500,000 acres of land, roughly, that are in tribal ownership or trust right now that that bill, those bills entail. Um, and um, there's some serious issues about that. But I am all in favor of economic security and economic sovereignty for our tribes. Um, They deserve it. My door is always open to uh, tribal leaders and tribal members, and we've been talking quite a bit about a lot of different issues and continue to do so. And so this leaves Maine at an impasse. Tribal leaders say they will continue to push to fix the deal that was made 40 years ago. But the state of Maine has all the power. All they have to do is nothing, and nothing changes. As I traveled the state and talked to different tribal members, there was a lot of confusion about how the relationship has gotten so bad in Maine. Sure, there are conflicts all across the nation over land and tribal rights, but in Maine, it feels like everyone is talking past each other. One of Maine's tribal attorneys, Corey Hinton, says he's never seen anything quite like it. I represent sovereign nations and have worked in communities in some of the most conservative states in the United States of America. Call it the Dakotas, Arizona, Indiana, Florida, you know, where you've got like really hard conservative values. They embrace tribal sovereignty for what it means as a rising tide that can economically lift everybody. You know, and in Maine, we're told it's too complicated. It's just too complicated. There are these states where they have hundreds of tribes dozens of tribes, far more complicated. Maine likes to think of itself as a vanguard, as a progressive state. 
But when it comes to indigenous peoples, Maine is at the back of the line. Some people say it's because Maine is frozen in time and change here is slow. There are lots of rural areas that have long struggled with poverty, both on and off the reservations. And the tribes may have an especially hard time making progress because they are very small. The Penobscots, for instance, have just over 2,300 members. As much as we push and push and push and put our heart and soul into it, it doesn't feel like we're making headway with the people that we need to make headway with. Maybe it's a fundamental difference in how the tribes and the states view the very land they stand on. For the Penobscot and the Passamaquoddy and the Micmacs and the Maliseets, the land is their history and their homeland, a place they've been for over 10,000 years. Their culture. You can't sign that away in a deal, no matter how many lawyers you get in a room, even with the signature of a president. Tribal members say they thought the 1980 Settlement Act would evolve and change, that it would be the start of a new relationship. But it seems like for the state of Maine, it was the end. The final say on who owns what and who has the power. Sovereign is a production of the Salt Institute for Documentary Studies at the Maine College of Art. This episode was produced and written by me, Serena Snyder. Our other producers are Sarah Esikoff, Sanam Skelly, and Matthew Brown. Our editor is Robert Smith. Molly and Dana consulted on this project. The episode was mixed by Merritt Jacob. Isaac Kestenbaum is the director of SALT. Our show art is by Haley Emmons. Special thanks to Araminta Matthews at SALT, Don Neptune Adams of Sunlight Media Collective, and Colin Woodard, who wrote the groundbreaking series Unsettled for the Portland Press-Herald. Isaac Kestenbaum here. I'm the director of SALT. And I just wanted to say that if you liked what you heard today and you want to make a podcast yourself, well, check out SALT. We offer graduate level certificates in audio and podcasting, as well as short film, through a 15-week immersive semester up here in Maine. We also have a lot of online workshops that we offer year-round. So to learn more about any of this, just check out mecca.edu slash SALT. That's M-E-C-A dot E-D-U slash SALT. Also, I just want to say a very special thanks to Carly Peruccio for all the work that she did to help put this episode together. And another very special thanks to Merritt Jacob, because in addition to mixing this episode, he also did all the music that you heard. This podcast was brought to you by Bangor Savings Bank. Bangor Savings Bank celebrates New England and its many locales. It's where we live, love, grow, and build. With the personal service and the heart of a local bank, but the resources and technology of a larger bank, Bangor Savings Bank fits the needs of your local community. Bangor Savings Bank. Local matters. Member FDIC. Equal housing lender.